I had a thought the other day. I'm I'm like really seeing a lot more movies in theaters right now. Yeah, you are. And I wonder if I've got the like a when I, I get out of a movie and I review them, I'm like, is there some sort of like, I think there's definitely like a seeing a movie in theater bias. Like I, yes, there like is. when I come out of it, I'm like, I don't know if I would have, I mean, it, obviously something like cocaine bear, like you need to see it in theaters. But I think yeah. there's also this kind of aspect of like, when you have the spectacle of it all, you're much more likely to be like, well, you know, good job. Everybody, everybody worked really hard on it. Like I give it an extra half star yeah. uh, just because of that. Whereas if, if I'm just like, watching it at home oh man i'm trying to get through this one random movie that popped up on my plex i've like started and stopped it like three times and i'm like i want to finish this movie but just keep can you say what movie it is it's uh it's the like 1974 lifeguard with sam elliott oh the sam elliott movie Yeah. yeah i haven't seen that but funny story with that is that uh that movie is why sam elliott thinks he didn't get indiana jones hmm I mean, he's he's great in it. He is he is. Oh man, you know, normally you watch like a sex comedy or something, and you're like, oh, okay, I, not everyone wants to sleep with this man. But you watch that movie, yeah. and you're like, yeah, no, I get it. But yeah. um, it's just, <laughs> it's not, it's not great. It's got a great cast, um, Ann Archer, Kathleen Quinlan. But um, yeah, I can't I can't decide what it wants to be. But I, yeah. I keep starting and stopping it. Yeah, brief story on that because I I saw Q and A with him when he was promoting stars born when he was doing that, he talked about how that movie was kind of his breakout role. And he always saw it as this like coming of age, like drama, mm-hmm. but people saw it as this like sex comedy. Yeah. yeah. And, Especially and, like the first like half hour of it is just sex comedy. And then it yeah. just all of a sudden is like, all right, now this guy wants to get serious about his life. Yeah. And he said, so he was very upset with how cause it was a paramount film. He was very upset by how they marketed the movie and back in the day, again, with these publicity tours, he went on a publicity tour for it. And he said he speaks openly on the tour about how bad the marketing was. Because mm. the poster was like him and like two girls in bikinis. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, but that's not the movie we made. And he spoke so badly about it that he's like, yeah, and since then, Paramount has never hired me. Mm. And he think and Paramount did Raiders. And he's like, I think I lost Raiders because I had spoken poorly about Paramount's marketing. Mm. And they wouldn't give me the role of a Raiders. Hey, but now thought. you know what? Paramount's doing uh, Yellowstone eighteen with that, that was whatever. the first role. That was the first role. <laughs> I I think that was honestly God the first role he'd done with Paramount since Lifeguard. Yeah, but no, it's I, it's, it's fine. It's it it, it yeah. wants to be something like like Heartbreak Kid or something. You know, he's got this yeah, like yeah. he's got Kathleen Quinlan's this like teenager he's hooking up with, and but he wants to be like dating Ann Archer, who's this like older woman who has her life together, but it doesn't just can't quite get the edge to uh-huh. kind of match a movie like that. Yeah, but no, but back to your original statement, I, I agree. I think, well, I always felt like there's something about walking out of a movie, and if it's if it's like, if you enjoyed it, not if it's mm-hmm. great or a match, but if you enjoyed it, you kind of walk out with a high. Mm-hmm. Like, that was really fun. I'm happy I came to see this. It's like, and I think just going to the movies is a, I, I don't know how, I, I think post-COVID, it's a very interesting world for, for movies and theaters right now. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, I think there's more interesting stuff happening. I think there's a way to, I mean, example, we, you saw Creed this weekend and Creed, I could tell overperformed. Yeah. My and theater I think was packed and it was a yeah, 1030 showing. Yeah. It overperformed. And I think that's because the, there's not a lot of movies coming out in theaters as much as there was pre COVID, but that's, that's allowing 
movies to essentially stay in theaters longer and get an audience, find an audience over time. Mm -hmm. Like I talked to a few friends about certain movies that they were on. They're just like, yeah, like if we released this pre COVID, it would have bombed. But there's something about with cocaine bear, with Megan, (laughs) with Creed, with Creed three, um, with Puss in Boots, with yeah, Ma- you know, if Puss, in Boots, if Puss in Boots had gone straight to Peacock during COVID, yeah. like, would adults be talking about it in the in the way that they are? You know, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it was like it built up, and I think there's just, I, I think this Christmas or this Christmas holidays kind of showed that like, if you leave a clear runway for someone like Disney, which is what they did with Avatar and Black Panther, even Ant Man, is that if you leave that big of a runway where you're not le- releasing any big movies audiences still want to go to the movie so they go find something else to go see well if there's not that big budget film oh let me go see megan let me go mm-hmm. see man called Otto. let me go see plane and skin like and yeah skin and marink uh let me go see all because because they still want to see it so i think it's just an interesting world where we're that we're in right now is that mm-hmm. i'm not saying there's the rise of mid-budget is coming back but it's kind of this these past few months have shown that if you put a mid-budget film that people are interested in if it be the title like cocaine bear if it be the concept <laughs> like like megan or if it be like I, someone posted like um god i think it was on variety they made a post of like our mediocre movies gonna save the movie but <laughs> the theater going and i go and they and the, the examples they used were ticket to paradise um a man called otto and i there's no family do and i go oh i wonder what the the reoccurring theme is here oh it's high concept movies or a big star people love. Yeah, make a, it's make the a, same make a thing. Cheaper movie with a big star. And, well, I mean, with Man Called Otto, you know, it's it's people people kept discounting that one before it came out, and I'm like, I don't like if if Reese Witherspoon's taught us anything, like you can't discount the book club people, and that book was yeah. huge. I mean, it's the same yeah. way with you know Crawdads came out to like terrible yeah, reviews, that, and people kept and that was a big it. hit. Yes, that was a big hit. <laughs> And I know people who love that movie. I didn't fully uh, care for it, but I, I also get why it has that audience. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it filled an an absent place in the market is the thing, and yeah. well, that's and this, all you have uh, to find. This Amazon show that's coming up, I think this week, uh, with Riley Keough. That's a huge book yeah. club book. Yeah, uh, and and I I think Amazon's going to see like crazy numbers with that. Yeah, too. Daisy 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 Jones and the Six. Yeah, yeah, and I've heard I've heard pretty decent things about it. Is the thing. Um, I've heard that. Oh yeah, and James Ponsel did it. Oh, okay, and he hadn't done stuff in a while. <laughs> Good to see him do that. Um, but yeah, I I think we're a very an interesting time for movies and. And I, I think with Marvel and or these big budget like superhero movies or just big budget films is that I think uh, if you're making kind of less of those, like as they've kind of been doing, it feels like or they're spreading them out more. It allows for smaller films to make money. I think we're not in the place where we were pre-COVID where like every weekend it like there was a big mm-hmm. budget film coming out. Yeah. Now well, it's, I, there's I think people, realize, you know, for a while there, everybody said you know, you have to have spectacle to get audiences back into theaters and everybody heard spectacle and they took that to mean, you know, a hundred million dollar movie. But I think spectacle can be 
spectacle can be michael b jordan and jonathan majors getting absolutely ripped and punching each other spectacle yeah. can be megan tiktok dancing like yeah. it's, it's just something that people want to experience on a big screen and you don't have to drop an insane amount of money on it um no. cocaine bear is all about spectacle but yeah well you know we're talking about talking about movies let's talk about yeah m- movie let's talk movies. About movies on movies and, yeah. and by the way i'm brandon sparks i'm thomas horton it's the nation podcast we talk about movie genres and this month as thomas said we're talking about movies on movies and hollywood as we've said loves talking about or loves telling stories about themselves it feels like a lot of the time and we talked about that with sunset boulevard last week also a quick thing about sunset boulevard it's a real tangent on sunset boulevard uh i forgot to mention there was a lady the sunset boulevard sorry, reminded me a little bit of this there was a lady that just recently passed away at the age of like 104 uh, and she was an actress named Marsha Hunt, and she lived in the same exact house that she bought in the 1940s oh when gosh. she passed away. And I remember like looking at like the the um the Google Maps like satellite view, and I was mm-hmm. like, God, it looks like Sunset Boulevard back because <laughs> it's like it's it was in Sherman Oaks, and she had this massive lot in comparison to everyone else mm-hmm. around her, and like they're like that she had a tennis court in the back that was completely dilapidated like stuff was up and i was like wow i wonder what it was like going in there and seeing like literally 80 years worth of stuff just like in this woman's house but anyway they just recently uh sold or had an estate sale at the house that like Cher and greg allman built together oh uh, wow when they were married in in atlanta and i saw some footage from it and it is wild they had a swimming pool in their living room that's that's insane (laughs) that's insane um but anyway enough about that but yeah i yeah i go i i look at zill gone wild all the time on on twitter um but yeah so what but with movies on movies thomas what did we talk about last week about this genre well specifically with sunset boulevard we talked about how kind of previous movies on movies or previous kind of showbiz stuff in the golden age of hollywood was all about like how great it was you know like even if ultimately singing in the rain ends up you know kind of skewering the film industry it's still about dreams coming true and and all of that stuff yeah. and and sunset boulevard is just a big like it's all about popping the balloon of being like hey guys it is we, we we talked about it being a film noir but turning the camera back around and pointing at hollywood it's it's just as seedy and slimy and gross as mm-hmm. any other city any other industry in the world yeah and so that kind of is a is a big turning point. Uh, we you know we said all about Eve came out that same year. It's a big turning point in being like we're we're not always celebrating the movies here. Yeah. Sometimes we are. Sometimes it's yeah. all about patting ourselves on the back, like the artist yeah. or something like that. Uh, but but sometimes it's it's also about uh, people who have lived within that system, people who have had you know their dreams dashed or accomplished their dreams mm-hmm. or whatever just kind of looking at what a weird little system Hollywood is and, and showing the people who are outside of it, who might think it's all glitz and glamor that that's not always the case. Yeah. And I think with this genre, there's almost like side, there's a kind of like sub genres in the sub genre in a way where that, like, that's kind of this takedown on like, look at the, the industry as a whole and what it can do to you and the, and, how how the dream factory is mm-hmm. could also be a nightmare factory basically yeah. i mean that's you know that's what every every version of a star is born has always kind of been about is yeah it, it can it can make stars and it can kill stars it's yeah it's, it's both 
And that movie's always, that kind of story's always been like, oh, well, if one goes up, one has to fall down. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the dream world can't take two big stars at one time. <laughs> we got we to gotta average it all out. Um, and that's kind of what Sunset Boulevard also kind of delves into is that like it, it's you you have the the optimism of it and the pessimism of it in that movie. Um, but then you have certain movies where it's literally just making a film. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, kind of the prime example of that. That version of movies on movies is today's movie. And what is today's movie, Thomas? Uh, today is 1995's Living in Oblivion, uh, written and directed by Tom, Tom DeCillo. Mm-hmm. It's a comedy exploring the literal nightmares that happen on the set of a low-budget independent film. Cast, we've got Steve Buscemi in a rare leading role. You yeah, know. he was. In, yeah, he was in this period. It was like this, like Trees Lounge. Um, I think um, he did that one in the soup i believe is what it was yeah. called Some, someone we generally think of as a character actor but also yeah. very good as a leading man uh yeah katherine keener dermot mulroney peter dinklage in his first on-screen role and james lagrosse mm-hmm. <laughs> um brandon i i think i recommended this movie to you You did is you that... did we were we were in a film school and you recommended this movie and state in maine mm-hmm. david maine with state in maine um and I never seen either of them. Um, I don't even know if I ever heard of either of them when you <laughs> told me to watch them. And Living in Oblivion was very hard to find yes. initially, was the thing. It was very difficult to find. I don't know if there was rights issues with it, because it was like I think I found it at Cinephile, luckily, but it was like an old mm-hmm. DVD, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, we'll and talk about that they, a little bit, but there was one DVD pressing in 2004, and then they just sat on it and they never oh, wow. pressed yeah. it again. Yeah, because then then it was yeah then it became there became a decent Blu-ray. I think around like 2017. Okay, okay. I was like 2016 or so, 2016, 17. Um, but yeah, it, it's so it was hard to find, and now it's it's like it's streaming on on several different platforms. <laughs> yeah, now it's kind of everywhere. Um, and and yeah, this is a movie where I know when I saw it, I was like, oh wow, this really nails what being on a low budget film set is mm-hmm. like, at least. And it's a movie, and we'll talk about this as we go on. It's like it's a movie where like I'm not sure how it plays to an outside audience, <laughs> but to it's it's like it's one of the most inside baseball movie movies about movies you could like make is the thing. Mm-hmm. State and Maine, which I'm also liking. I think deals also with the town and the area. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of, you can kind of get into it. Like they're making a movie in this small town. Um, but this one is very much like we're in this world of making a low budget film and every sequence, the kind of the three main sequences is just what you don't want to happen on a set. But you have the, like the, the, the bad parts of everything kind of as we'll talk more about the, at the very end kind of the good part of the filmmaking process um but yeah it, it really nails nails that home uh when i first watched it and it's kind of one that has now been passed around within my filmmaker friends of like hey if we're gonna make a movie we gotta watch this first because it's this is what we're gonna deal with when we make that movie and it, I think it asked the question, is it all worth it? And that's 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 also a big topic of the movies on movie genre. Is it all worth it is the thing. 
Um, but yeah, but what was your history with it? You you passed it on to me, mm-hmm. but when had you seen it before? It was that like a film class or did you? Yeah, just... it was it was okay. my like intro to film class in in undergrad. The first my undergrad had a a film history minor, and and kind of the first class you had to take was um. It was interesting. It was there was there wasn't a very strict curriculum to it. It was just kind of whatever the direct the, whatever the professors. It was a director, uh, a, a guy who had a lot of experience directing, and then the head of the acting program at College of Charleston. And okay. They co they co taught it together, and um, they just kind of showed you whatever they felt like showing you in that class. We watched mm. um, some of the ones I saw for the first time in that. I, we saw a place in the sun. We oh. saw uh, uh, Robert Altman's Images, uh, which oh, is wow. a very weird Robert Altman movie to yeah. pick. Um, that's where I saw Days of Heaven for the first time. Uh, but this okay. one, this one, I, I can't remember if they showed it on the first day, but it this is such a um, we'll talk a little bit later about kind of the legacy of this as like a film school film but it is it is such a good movie to be like this is what it's going to be like especially for film students um yes this is what you're going to be dealing with and are you sure that you want to be dealing with this (laughs) (laughs) but yeah it's one that that just i I just i i had a really good time with i we we can discuss you know you said you think it might be a little too narrow some of the reviews i read were like you know this is it's it, it could come it can hit you especially when you first start it as is like oh it's one of those like indie 90 films like kind of pretentious but it, it ends up being like pretty broad and i think it's a mm-hmm. fairly accessible uh comedy so well, we're yeah. gonna talk about that a little bit more but um yeah let's get into to how okay. it got made because it's a fun it's a fun story yeah so Tom DeCillo uh, attended NYU in the 1970s where he met uh, fellow student Jim Jarmusch Mm-hmm. and became his go-to DP. So DeCillo spent most of the 80s DPing for Jim Jarmusch as Jarmusch was kind of breaking out. He also DP'd for another fellow NYU grad, Howard Bruckner, for much mm-hmm. of the 80s. Um, Bruckner you know, was kind of up and coming on the indie scene, uh, but passed away in the 90s due to AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, but DeCillo ultimately wrote and directed his first feature film, which was 1991's Johnny Swade. Johnny Swade is uh, mostly notable these days as the first starring role for Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. It shot kind of, uh, DeCillo remembers they were shooting it when Thelma and Louise was coming out. And yeah. and when he wanted to cast Brad Pitt in this, his producer was like, this guy's a nobody. And he's like, well, I mean, he just did this like Ridley Scott movie. Like, you know, let's, let's, let's give him a little bit of credit. And, and then, you know, as history would have it, Thelma and Louise is his kind of big breakout. Yeah. And and Johnny Swade would not would not do well. <laughs> no, Johnny Swade premiered at Sundance to a pretty positive reception, but only garnered he he says it was out for a week in New York at art house theaters and, and pretty little buzz outside of that. Um, I've tried watching it. It is it plays like a like a pretentious student film, which <laughs> you know, ultimately I think will 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 play into a little bit of what Living in Oblivion is about. Yes, but I agree. Uh, it's it's pretty rough. It's it's Brad Pitt, Catherine Keener, Nick Cave is in it. Um, oh. which, you know, it's part part of the reason I watched it was out of curiosity to see Nick Cave. Looks in like it. Sam- Samuel Jackson's also in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Briefly, um, 
So, but again, but again it's not, that's like the New York scene at this time. It's yeah. like a lot of indie films are happening. Oh yeah, Jim Jar Jim Jarmusch to put in perspective was kind of like the first big breakout of that NYU New York mm -hmm. film movement, and then people followed suit. Uh, Spike Lee, like uh, um, Greg Matola with Day Trippers is like mm -hmm. another one I think of. Yeah, um, a lot of those Parker Posey movies, Party yeah. Girl, um all kind of coming out of that period and i think this this fits very nicely mm -hmm. into that may i sorry if i jumped ahead a no, little bit, good. But yeah, yeah. yeah but like well and the, the ushering in of a kind of a new class of actors too because it, it was you know yeah. the people who were doing the new york theater scene they didn't have you didn't yep. have to choose between doing new york theater or doing or going out to hollywood and auditioning for things you could yeah. just be in new york yep um that's kind of you know the the i feel like the 90s New York indie scene is kind of the reason that Ethan Hawke's career kept going because he did a lot of theater kind of immediately after Dead Poets yeah. Society and then he was able to do these kind of indie New York features and some yeah, no. and some indie Texas features I guess a lot yeah yeah because he's from Texas so it makes yeah because because like Reality Bites is in Houston I believe mm. um of course you know uh uh well we'll before sunrise is not technically in texas <laughs> but he is texas in the movie so tachillo admittedly spent a few years after johnny suede feeling pretty bitter about how it did and he said he felt burned out on filmmaking he wasn't really sure if he ever wanted to even try it again uh until he attended his wife's cousin's wedding which we're going to play a clip right here because i just like the way he explains it um this is from a film festival for the 10th anniversary of living in oblivion when he's talking about uh where the idea for the film came from i went to a wedding and out of this haze at this wedding was, was about 300 miles away from here some guy drifts up in front of me and he goes hey tom what are you doing here and it was some guy who was in an acting class that i had taken about eight years earlier and he said to me God, you're so lucky, Tom. You made a movie. You know, lights, camera, action, all that, you know. <laughs> well, that third martini was, was, was really what, you know, what did it for me. And I just, I just went, listen, let me tell you something about making a movie. You know, you, know, you, you can be right in the middle of the scene. There you are. You've got an actress that, that really is already in prime to do, to do a scene. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the camera screws up. Then what? Okay, if you're lucky, the actress can do it again. Well, what happens if it happens again? And I went. And that was the idea for the film. I gave that guy so much credit that I put him in the movie. He is, he is the guy that runs around hitting the sticks. A lot of nightmares on a film set. <laughs> a lot of nightmares on a film set. So the inspiration from his rant uh, led him to write a short film script about an indie director desperate to get just one shot despite everything else on set working against him. Mm -hmm. He sent the script around to his friends, the first being Catherine Keener, who starred alongside Brad Pitt, as we said, in Johnny Swade. Uh, not long after he sent the script to Keener, he gets a call from her husband at the time, Dermot Mulroney, who said, hey, I read the script you sent Catherine. I really, I'll, I'll chip in some money, but I want to be Nick. I want to be the director. And... Tom said, well, you, you know what? I, now, I hadn't really thought about this, but if you're interested in it, I think you'd be really good for Wolf, who is the uh, cinematographer. Um, 
<laughs> you know, I think it's funny. The first time I saw this movie, I didn't realize that Tachillo was coming from the camera side of yeah. things. So, so when you watch it in that aspect, I think there's a lot of a lot of kind of loving jabs put into yeah. the wolf character. <laughs> yeah, there, there's so many things, and we'll discuss more. It's like I, I that like I see in the people we've worked with. Like, <laughs> like there is a specific section that feels like our the DP we've used. Yeah, my yeah. friend Mark, Cam- camera bros. It, well, it, well, it's like it's it's the part when when he's like i'm jumping ahead favorite scenes real quick but like when he's like when they're like wolf what are you doing he goes oh, just put just put like the flag right there put right there just, 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 <laughs> two, like, seconds. No. two seconds no two seconds <laughs> no tweaking no tweaking and that that's mark on every sh- hey yeah perfect, yeah perfect oh we're going down for two minutes uh i'm gonna i'm gonna tweak the lights, <laughs> yeah. so tom so dechillo was like no i think you'd be really great for wolf moroni was like you know what okay i'm on board but can I recommend for the director, this actor, I know Steve Buscemi. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Steve Buscemi, it's it's not like Steve Buscemi wasn't a name at this point. He had already done Reservoir Dogs. He mm-hmm. was a pretty, fairly well-known character actor at the time. But um, DeChillo was actually aware of Buscemi because he used to be a big fan of Buscemi's 1980s comedy troupe, he, comedy duo. Oh. Uh, Steve Buscemi and Mark Boone Jr., were a well-known comedy duo in in the New York theater scene in the 1980s. Okay. Um, and they used to perform these two-man comedic like plays that they would write. And DeChillo had had seen like a bunch of their shows. Okay. <laughs> that was something I did not. If you're know about. Any, anyone who's familiar with Mark Boone Jr. would probably know him from later in his career with the like super long hair, super big beard. But there's some some really fun pictures on if you go online of a very young Steve Buscemi and a very young Mark yeah. Boone Jr. doing like these little skits that they would film. Yeah, Mark Boone Jr. from Sons of Anarchy mm-hmm. and uh, Batman Be- like Christopher Nolan movies, Batman mm-hmm. Begins. He he's the uh, corrupt cop in Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Is what it is. He's the one so, that yeah. he, like dangles off the roof, right? Uh yes in the first well he didn't dangle i don't know if he dangles he, he picks him up at one point it's mm. when he's in the where that kind of like shipyard warehouse mm-hmm. fight or whatever with all that's when he's i think he's was like who are you i'm batman i think mm-hmm. that's where he he's the one that gets to hear that yeah so dechilla went on to um oh bushimi he sent bushimi the script um bushimi had actually just wrapped on a short film that he had directed himself it was his directorial debut so he says it immediately spoke to him because he was like i yeah. feel this guy 100 percent. i've lived this so he's in um Ticillo essentially auctioned off the rest of the roles in the short he would ask his friends on the new york scene like hey chip in a little bit of money get a part in my movie and yeah. so and so they uh they self-funded the the movie kind of through doing that um you've got a lot of people from the the kind of new york scene including kevin corrigan mm-hmm. who's kind of a 90s independent film Another, legend yeah, yeah. might he, be more he, familiar he, with him from his his sitcom uh period but uh ground if, for life ground yeah. for life right if He's anything if anything from martin scorsese movies um yeah, Kevin Corrigan, uh, he's yeah, he always just like pops up in indie films in the nineties. He's mm-hmm. just kind of that guy. Um, he's also in um Walking and Talking, not long after this, with Catherine Keener. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, yeah. he plays a he plays a video store clerk, is the thing. Uh you also have in this uh Jim Jarmish's brother Tom plays the kind of nosy transpo driver. Uh how long, cus- how long how long you been in cinematography i'm the director <laughs> oh how'd you get in that 
Um, his cousin-in-law, Hillary Guilford, whose wedding he was at when he came uh-huh. up with the idea for the film, uh, chipped in a little bit of money and plays the script supervisor. And her husband, Michael oh. Griffith, plays Speedo, the sound mixer. Oh, okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> We can talk about this later, but uh, for better or for worse, his wife's trainer uh, heard about the deal and chipped in some oh, money. Oh, is he to, the boom operator? To buy himself a role as the boom <laughs> operator. Yo, I need a line, I need a camera line, <laughs> I need a frame line. Oh gosh. So, I mean, he is—he is kind of yeah. yeah we'll, we'll talk about it's later. questionable. It's questionable. Yeah. Um, yeah. So ultimately, they raised thirty-seven thousand dollars. Everyone got together. They shot for five days on sixteen millimeter, which is what Dechilla said was all they could afford for this shoot. Yeah. <laughs> which now is like that would be like that's like sixteen millimeter would be also like a god's or a dream for some people. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. So as they got near to the end of the shoot, the cast was having a really great time, and they were like, "Oh, come on, Tommy, you gotta turn this into a feature. Like we gotta." keep going yeah. nobody kind of wanted it to end but he this was it this was his full idea was this trying to get this scene and and it doesn't work and then the director blows up and then it turns out that the whole thing has been literally a director's nightmare but he wrapped he cut the short together it came together really well he was really happy with it but he says then he didn't know where to screen it it's yeah. like most film festivals that want shorts want like five to 10 minutes. Yep. Nobody wants a 30 minute short. Yep. So with this problem in mind and kind of knowing how excited everybody was to make more, he starts writing a feature script. Uh, mm-hmm. He's envisioning it as a triptych uh, mostly just so he doesn't have, so he can just use that first segment and he doesn't yeah. have to, to change any of it. Like, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want any, I don't want to have to go back and like add a plot back into it or anything so we're gonna make it in three segments so he comes up with the second sequence which is another nightmare but this time it's lead actress nicole's nightmare about having to share a scene with a prima donna of an actor Mm -hmm. he's lost though when it comes to what to do for the last sequence he says he doesn't didn't want to end the movie with the dream because nobody nobody really likes you know the uh what was it saying elsewhere oh it was all a dream Uh, ending yeah 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 Yeah. so he he wants it to be set in kind of real waking life but he doesn't know kind of what to tackle with it you know obviously the first scene is kind of a director's nightmare the second scene is an actor's nightmare um but so his wife ultimately came up with she said you know if the first two segments are about dreams then what if the Mm -hmm. theme of the third segment is just dreams yeah and you know it can be real life but what if you're you're kind of the, your your thesis is dreams so that's where he came up with the idea of like oh how hard it is to shoot a dream sequence and ultimately how kind of hacky a lot of dream sequences end up being yeah. in movies uh and then and then he you know he, come, he came up with that kind of ending segment of what everyone on this crew is is dream what are their dreams you know what what's ultimately on their mind with the script finished then he needed to seek out financing. It was about six months since the initial shoot, and he had all of the cast on a soft hold. He's like, I'm, I'm trying to make this happen, guys. Yeah. Uh, Bushimi noted that he lost out on a couple of roles in this period because he told him he could not cut his hair because he had to leave the, oh, the wow. Nick hair. Yeah. Um, Ticillo got finally got some interest from who he calls a Hollywood hotshot with, with a little bit of money who fancied himself a film producer. He... he uh, 
offered DeChillo $300,000 for the shoot on the condition that DeChillo came out to LA to shoot it, uh, recast the whole thing and shot the no. whole thing over again. No. DeChillo obviously was not happy with this offer, but there weren't any other options. No. So he's kind of debating back and forth what to do when he gets a call from cousin-in-law Hillary Guilford. <laughs> her uh, her father had recently passed away and left her with a decent inheritance and she asked tom do you mind if i finance the rest of the movie oh wow what a godsend but that's <laughs> she did not have to do that at all wow like, do i mind of course not uh he says it's the first time he's never in filmmaking gotten to call a producer and tell him to take their money and shove it but uh um, yeah. but he got to do it this time and he started calling the cast to get them back together Here's, would you would you take that offer that first offer if that second offer is not coming do you take it i don't know i like that i don't know if i could yeah i, I think it would end up being a nightmare you know you, you know this yeah. you know this cast works together well and they're all really yep. like you, you'd, you'd hurt a lot of people's feelings i think if you that's the thing i think i'm like too loyal to mm -hmm. be like it's my movie guys i'm out like i that just feels so mm -hmm. yeah i feel so bad the last thing Chillo had to do to get the feature made was cast the two remaining roles that that did not roll over from the from mm. the first sequence. Uh, Chad Palomino, the hotshot actor, and T Tito, the actor with dwarfism, from the final sequence. Uh, jumping forward to aftermath, real quick. After the release of this film, kind of the the talking point of this movie was that Chillo had written the Chad Palomino character as a dig at Brad Pitt who he yeah. worked with, obviously, on Johnny Swade. Um, Chillo had said in interviews, like, oh, this was really inspired by what I went through making Johnny Swade. So everybody immediately went, oh, the hot oh, blonde actor whose yeah, imbecile yeah. is Brad Pitt. Um, even the Variety and New York Times reviews of the movie when it initially came out make some, like, really snide comments about Brad Pitt in it. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah this, we're not going to say who, but it's this is about Brad Pitt. Yeah. Um, I, I can imagine it's not so 1995 when this came out interview with a vampire and legends of the fall had dropped the yeah. year before and he's Brad Pitt's on every tabloid cover. He's dating Gwyneth Paltrow. It's Brad, yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. People are kind of, he, he hasn't, pe people are deciding whether or not they think he's overrated, you know? Yes. And, and so all these critics are like, Oh, this is, this is about Brad Pitt. This is hilarious. Um, <laughs> Tachillo has spent years trying to quell this rumor. Uh, yeah. He counters that the part was not written about Brad Pitt. It was written for Brad Pitt. Yeah, that's why. Uh, that's what I thought. He loved working with Pitt on Johnny Swade, and he thought it would be fun to play this role and kind of send up his heartthrob persona that people yeah. were obviously uh, feeling very strongly about at the time. And Pitt was fully on board. He was, he was going to do it. Uh, but he got called away for an unplanned extended publicity tour for legends of the fall mm. so had to back out kind of last minute uh dicillo obviously the, was fu the, the, the funny part is that this probably ends up being a bigger film of pit is in the movie oh yeah absolutely for, like e easily uh but you know dicillo's pretty pretty sad his buddy can't yeah, do yeah. it he calls up katherine keener says hey listen I'm, I'm sorry brad had to back out i'm not even i'm not really sure who else we can put in a role like this and and she said, uh, Tom, wait a minute. James LaGrosse is walking by my house right now. And she leaned out her window and said, hey, James, do you want to do a movie with me? <laughs> <laughs> so then James LaGrosse was in. He uh, 
you know, very, very prominent independent actor of the kind of late, yeah. late eighties, early nineties. Um, yeah. He drugstore cowboy, um, was a big one. He briefly, he briefly appears in near dark Catherine Bigelow's film. And he's in point break as well. Yeah. He's in point break. Yes. Um, so the final part to cast and the only one that DeCillo says it's, it's the only role that he held auditions for is Tito, the actor yeah. who shows up in the final scene. Yes. Uh, there's, they've already started shooting the second sequence and DeCillo's having auditions on the side for actors to play this role. And he, he's telling his cast, like none of these auditions are going very well. <laughs> he's, he hasn't had to audition anybody for this movie the whole time. So yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a little disappointed in how things are going. And Kevin Corrigan says, well, I just saw a great actor in a play recently. His name was Peter Dinklage. And DeChillo was like, oh, let's get him on the phone. And Corrigan's like, I don't I don't know anything about him. I just saw him in a play like I don't know him. <laughs> uh, no one knew where to find him. Oh, wow. So they're trying to track down Peter Dinklage and he's calling around and somebody says, oh, I think I know who you're talking about. He works at the co- at the copy shop uh, like on so and so street. Uh-huh. And so Tachillo calls the coffee shop and is like, is this Peter Dinklage? He's like, yeah. He's like, I want you to come audition for my movie. So <laughs> for, for anyone in the younger audience, a coffee shop is where you used to go to get things printed for you. I mean, there's a, there's a coffee shop right by the video store. So it's just, <laughs> they, they, they still exist. They still exist. All right, by Cinephile. Shout out, Copy Depot. Thank you. Thank you, Copy Depot. <laughs> Hey, they print they print they print they they print off our screening things when oh, we did them. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Well, I was about to say younger people don't e- we don't even own printers these days, so co- we we still need copy shops. Yeah. Um, Dinklage is on board. The whole cast is rounded out. They're gonna start shooting. Let's talk about some favorite scenes. Yeah, I mean, where should we start, <laughs> Thomas? Um, well, let's, let me go to my let me go to my my list. Um, well, again, I love just the, it's the, it's, it's the throwaway lines that like really just like get me. It's the, mm-hmm. like, I think with like, example, the first, the first sequence when like the eighties, like whatever it takes, Nick, we got all the time in the world, got all the time in the world. And by the end of the day, you're like, Hey, we have to change the shot. Yeah. Nick. We got to change the shot. We can't do it in a one Um, is that okay? And mm-hmm. you're like, I thought we had all the time in the world. Well, we've kind of lost all that now. Because we took too long. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think to to as a blanket statement i i i think i think wolf is the best performance dirt moroni's ever given <laughs> not to say he's a bad actor um i think i i like him in things but him in this movie is just amazing to me like he is yeah. amazing in this movie <laughs> i think he's got comedic chops that people don't you know when he yes when he, when he kind of graduated from the indie film class in the 90s with something like best friend's wedding and then kind of became this like heartthrob in the late 90s yeah. nobody was letting him play up on like like this like he's just ham- he's he's allowed to ham it up as as wolf and he's fantastic yeah. at it. I, I think honestly one of my favorite line deliveries in this whole movie is when he's when when uh the ad is trying to talk nick into changing the shot and he i love this shot hell i designed it hell i designed it (laughs) he's got his little you know his his little frame on his neck and he's like looking around like oh yeah um hell i designed it i designed it and like and against that scene where like oh we wolf and i have talked and he's like wolf what do you think well you know how i feel (laughs) (laughs) um yeah you know 
there's like he said there's so many good throwaway lines there's so many good throwaway jokes in this yes. and, and and i do think you know it's ultimately i guess we can continue to debate if this is broad enough to appeal to a wider audience but there there are yeah. a lot of oh there's a lot of really good in jokes in this but they're not presented in a way that's like you you can gloss over them if you don't get what they're talking about but but if you do like the the smaller things like in the in the opening scene when you're seeing the crafty setup at the beginning and you've just got kevin corrigan over the walkie like does anyone know where i parked the camera truck where should i put the camera truck where's camera truck parking and like no one's talking no one's responding and and one of the kind of recurring jokes that i uh, that i love that you know if if you're if you're not in on it it, it's it's perfectly fine you're not you're not missing out Mm -hmm. on anything but it is a kind of fun in joke is that the the guy the guy who inspired the whole movie the uh the second ac with the with the slate just keeps doing it like right in in catherine keener's face so loud and she's like jumping every time but he never nobody ever asked for soft sticks like he never thinks to do it um yeah, I think I think Wolf says it one time at one point, but the guy does not do it. <laughs> soft sticks, soft sticks. For those who don't know, is that when you don't with the clapper, as I said, the clapper board you put to to sync up sound and video. Soft sticks is where you do it softly, so you can do it and not just clap it like whatever. Uh, and when it's in someone's face, it's very startling. Is the mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, he. I was like, God, he keeps hitting that clapper so hard. <laughs> He keeps hitting that slate so hard. Um, oh man! But I mean, I think the I think the standout. Of, I th- I think there's there's kind of strengths strengths and people who shine in each segment. And yes. I think Catherine Keener yes. is the standout of the first segment because yes, she's playing somebody acting and she does such a good job. It, it she's she's so great at, at you seeing the energy sap out of Nicole as they go take for take yes. for take. Yes, yes. And and the thing is, is like people don't realize how good you have to be to act poorly. Does yeah. that make sense? Because like none of those takes are bad, is the thing. And, no, and if you they're showed, not bad. If you showed somebody just one of them, which you know is ultimately what's going to make the cut, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's good. But then, but as you're as you're presented with them sequentially, and you start to see them deteriorate a little bit yeah. and a little bit every time it becomes so apparent by like the last one before they, they have to break that you're, you've just like lost it completely. Yeah. And then, and then you get, it's to get that nightmare that the worst case scenario is that you go for a rehearsal. This is why you always take the rehearsal. <laughs> um, is you go for a rehearsal and they kill it and everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. And you weren't rolling because your DP is throwing up in the, uh, in the bathroom because he drank the milk from crafty that was possibly a few days old um <laughs> that's a that's a great throwaway joke too is when the guy's like what time is it and she's like four he's like this milk is old <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like what does that have to do with anything um, um and th- and then yeah i love and, and like and wolf's like god this coffee's the worst coffee i've ever had before in my life and at one point he's like you give me coffee half milk is yeah. like what he says at one After- point drench it in milk to get rid of the taste the taste <laughs> i do love another great wolf line in that first segment is is when they they are rolling on the last what will ultimately be the last take and the beeping starts and the boom off's like yeah that's the camera beeping and he goes like that's hell it is it's not even <laughs> on <laughs> so that's the first sequence and 
Oh man, no, it's 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 fun. It's like the 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 AC Kevin Corrigan messing up the the focus pull mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's good stuff. Then we get into the second sequence and yeah. I mean, as I said, movie would have been bigger with Brad Pitt, but James LaGrosse is really damn good <laughs> in this in this sequence. Like really perfect. Like it's because I, 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 a lot of reviews I saw, they were like, oh, yeah, like it loses steam once he leaves. I don't know if I agree with that statement, but I do agree that he's such a big highlight is that you almost wish he was in there a little bit more, mm-hmm. I think. But no, I love and his like his just like relationship with everyone on set. If it's like him and Nick and him and, and them, I can't really work with her like she's just she's really terrible. Like she was. She, she was horrible in that Richard Gere movie, which he never saw because he says he never saw her in it, I think, earlier mm-hmm. on in the movie. Um, but him, him and Wolf, like, because Wolf just hates him. He's like, and he's so patronizing. There's, yeah. there's like one time when he calls him, like, Lobo. <laughs> yeah, Lobo, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines, like, line reads is it's like, when they're getting ready to go and, and he's and and uh LaGrosse is like, Wolfie, let's shoot this motherfucker. And, <laughs> and Wolfie's like, kiss my ass. It's like, what are you just, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just perfect. It's so perfect. Kiss my ass. <laughs> You've got that great wolf the whole wolf eye patch. The, the eye patch is yeah, the bet. is the metaphor for his for his broken heart. Uh, <laughs> oh, there's something in my eye. Because his girlfriend yeah. wants to wants to get with the AD. and it, and also like it also showcases the idea of like uh location ship it feels like mm. like when like showmance showmance yeah yeah um when you're on you're on a show with someone and you start dating and then once it's done you're that's it that was yep. that's all of it yeah um happens a lot uh and yeah but i love i, I won't go to because the, there's a third one that's that's pretty great but the way i use the eye patch is really funny mm-hmm. and like yeah it's like he keeps missing the eye patch and then look gross so i think my character should have an eye patch in the oh scene. yeah I really, I really like it that reveal and like, when he's like where's my eye patch and then he just whips around and he's yeah. got it on is fantastic <laughs> and it's like, it's like i think it'd be great if i just lay on the bed here and we do, and we do the scene this way mm-hmm. and then okay well we, we want to uh, he's, he's like well we can't his face isn't lit do we want his face lit or do he wants the act or like do you want the act or do you want do you want to get good acting or see his face like i thought we could have both is what he, <laughs> is what Bushemi says and that that process is so well done is when you you know at first you think it's just palomino coming up with these just idiotic ideas and then ultimately you realize he's trying to upstage nicole completely to the point where he's like oh it's like i'm gonna have her play it off camera it's play it completely on me. Maybe I should come into a foreground because she says a far. Yeah. So maybe yeah. I should be close to the camera and she should be like far away from it. <laughs> and then again, I, I love, I, I love when they do the, when she, oh, let's go for improv. He goes, that's the only way I work. When I tried the entire time. And then anytime she ad-libs, he's like, it's, he just changes like a word. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, what's the what was she say that, that they're like he's like ah more like a uh kind of kind of professional isn't it it's like <laughs> what he changes it to which makes no sense for the scene um that's that's champagne talking or whatever he says or that's champagne talk or something yeah he's just, he's so bad at improv and that's another thing too like a side thing with actors is that most actors i'm sorry to actors who are listening aren't great at like improv on mm-hmm. on like when doing a scene like that and also like 
improv is for rehearsals a lot of the time it's not always for shooting and yeah. if you talk about with comedies like with more mainstream comedies nowadays they'll say it's all about improv on camera that's fine but i think a lot of the improv it needs to be discovered in the rehearsal process mm-hmm. not on camera a lot of the time uh especially not because i was listening to it was i think it was billy zane talking about like titanic how they're like oh yeah we we improv the the table flip when he like flips the table and Kate in front of Kate Winslet and they're like, so you improv that? Did she know that was happening? He's like, of course she knows it was happening. That'd be dangerous if she didn't know. We we improved it and we talked about it in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. Like it's why it wasn't in the script. We made it up as we as we broke down the story. Yeah. So people people sometimes think, oh, improv just I just do it without telling anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there there's it's dangerous if it's something like that where you're flipping a whole table in front of Kate Winslet. Anyway, that's a tangent. My bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I, I I like seeing like even throughout the dreams you start seeing the deterioration of like the AD and DP relationship mm-hmm. as it goes on. Yeah, it's and well, and it's funny to see what carries over from the dreams and what doesn't. Like, yeah, I I, they, I like in the third sequence. I like that they make a reference that like Chad's not on set that day, so yeah. it's like in reality Chad could be like perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like nobody's yeah, yeah, yeah. like nobody's like oh I'm glad Chad's not here today. You know, yeah. it's just like oh Chad's not in this scene. Um, yeah. But kind of like, cause, cause it still keeps that that he slept with Keener the night before, with mm-hmm. Nicole the night before. So basically, it's like he just he slept with her. Like, oh yeah, and I'm just I'm not going in today. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, thought it was be too awkward maybe or something <laughs> like that. But but yeah, um, yeah. And the third sequence, I mean, I think again, I think why because someone's at the third season, third scene doesn't work that well, and I kind of disagree because I think Dinklage is so good. Yeah. in yeah. that sequence. And like, and I, I you know you get kind of the the only there there is this kind of romance that they play on with Nicole and and Nick but um, yeah but the only like real kind of character storyline you get in it is is Wolf and I just love the way Nick's mom the, pulling up the patches and crying and the tear falls down <laughs> it's like he's crying. On the one eye, it goes, falls down, and then she just lifts the eye patch, and another tear slowly <laughs> falls down. It's perfect. It's perfect. And, like, his face, when he's just looking at her, like, no words spoken, he just starts to, like, like well up as he's <laughs> looking at this old woman who's who's basically left the, reti- who's, like, escaped the retirement home is what mm-hmm. it is. Um, and I do love the kind of opening. He's like, yeah, I was, I was in a dream, and it was terrible. It was, the scene was going bad, and, like, there was this woman in the scene that I didn't know who it was that ends up being his mom mm-hmm. uh, later. Um, but no, Dinklage is just like, it's the, I love the scene when he's like, uh, like to Corgan, why, why don't you knock or whatever when he's in the bathroom. But in the best part is when like, uh, Bushimi asks him to laugh and it comes back and he's like, Hey, I need you to laugh next time. I did laugh. And it's just like, Okay. He, he totally did not. I did laugh. And then he's and then later he's like in like walking around the set, huh. Ha, 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 ha. Like practicing this horrible laugh. Uh what about any any parts in that sequence that you like? Yeah, I mean I, I think I think there's definitely something special about kind of going back and seeing Dinklage. And I and I can see how you know, I think it is a fantastic performance, but I do think knowing him and knowing that this is his first screen role does add something to the third sequence that maybe yes. in 1995 
especially if you kind of everybody you know james lagros at this point it is kind yeah. of like the big kind of guest star in the second sequence and then you just go into the third and it doesn't have that same energy but now it's yeah it's almost now like it the does. energy swapped a little bit because you know. yes i agree lagros hasn't didn't really blow up as much after this movie mm-hmm. when dinklage skyrocketed and, and granted it took dinklage a while mm-hmm. but now it's he he looks almost the exact same uh, he, he hasn't really he hasn't aged that way like, i guess in comparison to say living in oblivion to the first part of game of thrones he's aged very well essentially mm-hmm. um yeah and it's like and like he, he's I mean, he's he's on the cover of the blu-ray because he got that big mm-hmm. afterwards he's only in like he's only in one scene basically but uh, but, but the whole thing is such a great takedown you know some some reviews you read at it say it's kind of like specifically aimed at david lynch i don't i don't i don't know that DeChillo has any bones no, to pick with david lynch no, but yeah. um i think that's that period of just filmmaking what was yeah. happening with people but it's um, just like yeah okay well now we gotta make it weird and it's just weird for the sake of being weird yeah and then it you know when when dinklage ultimately blows up and it has that great line about you know why why does a dream automatically have to have a dwarf in it i don't even have dreams with dwarves with in dwarves them in. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you can just see it on Bushimi's face of like oh i i don't know why i wrote it like this i yeah. just kind of assumed I, I was supposed to which happens especially when you're especially when you're early on making movies oh, yeah. is that a lot of times you'll write stuff thinking oh yeah i've never seen this before when in reality oh you've seen it all the time that's why you came up with the idea and that's kind of you, you know it's there. it's 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 the, it's that mindset you get in and I, I feel like kind of that that 90s indie scene was so strong it feels a lot and, and i mean you know chillo was a film school guy he was an nyu guy but like i can totally relate when i was you know applying to film schools a couple places made you write short scripts um a couple places made you make a short usc made you make a short and um Mm -hmm. like everything i wrote was like so serious like yeah everything was so dour and serious and then we like got to film school and i think it was in our first like script writing class i wrote you know we wrote a couple of things and then i wrote something funny just a short little like like two-bit script dialogue scene and it was funny and our professor was like Oh, you know, you should try writing comedy. And I just had this moment of like, I'm I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to write comedy. I'm allowed to do something funny in film school. Like I thought everything had to be, <laughs> had to be weird be and dark and depressing. <laughs> well, I know, I know you were. I mean, I think because this is why you and I kind of like connected early in film school is that I think sometimes we felt that we were a little bit outside of what the norm was. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like. I remember you mentioned like, yeah, I don't want to mention it here, but like I'm into Marvel films and no one wants to say that here at USC. <laughs> like, and that was, Marvel was a very different period at that yes, point. But it was yes, just like, true. But uh, it, 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 was, it was like basically leading, I mean, because we it was leading up to Avengers 2. You're like, yeah, I don't want people to know that like I'm really into Marvel. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, like, because you, you weren't, you weren't listing In the Mood for Love as your favorite film. Oh God, I don't even remember what I said. And I might have said Days of Heaven, which I mean is 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 a top five. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. I was scared to say Raiders of the Lost Ark at that point. Um Yeah. But you know, it's all this stuff. It's it's like built into like, oh, you gotta open on like an alarm clock going on. Yep. <laughs> That's all that yeah. film school tropes. Yeah. And uh, I just feel like that kind of like dream sequence thing is one of them. And you've gotta have the you know, you've gotta have the tilted doors like German expressionism and, yep. and yes. 
Um, Smoke. Gotta have fog. Gotta have fog in a dream. Dinklage just comes in and he's in it for a brief amount of time, but he completely speaks the thesis of almost the whole movie. It's just like, do you ever take a minute to think about why you're doing any of this? And and then ultimately, I, I've seen people ask Dechillo and and kind of Q and A's. You know, you you've been like skewering filmmaking in this. You've been skewering kind of Hollywood. Do you, do you regret having a happy ending to it? And he's like, I, he he's, he he says uh he says if if I couldn't write a happy ending to this movie, I I probably would have just blown my brains out because it's yeah. like you know there has to be a reason. Yeah, why we're doing this. doing this? Yes, is that is that. It's the and that's and that's what happens a lot of time. It's the happy accidents that end up being the the best part of something. Mm -hmm. Is that when that moment occurs, like it happens in this film, is that everything's been going wrong, and then something just happens, and everything goes right. You you look at things differently. Like Wolf's been saying, we should be doing handheld, not on a dolly. And then it's like, well, damn, we got to do on the on the handheld really quickly. Um, Let's just circle. Okay, then we'll and and uh, Nicole just like see her, but don't see her, and mm-hmm. all these things just it clicks the right time, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for everything clicking at the right moment, and that's a difficult thing sometimes. And sometimes you have to force that. If you're David Fincher, you're like forcing that in the edit where this character's good on take thirty, this character's good, this actor's good on take sixty. Let's put them together in the edit to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, but at this point in time, you couldn't do it. You had to like really work for that moment of when everyone was hitting at the right time. And when it happens, it's magic. And that's what, a, that's the romanticized version of movie making essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is truth to it. Yeah. Especially when it's that low budget. I mean, it's like they're recreating what's happening that, that low budget. Let's put our money together, make this as a team um, and have a lot of fun doing it. That's what you hope for. Look, Tito, it's not that big of a deal. It's a dream. Strange things happen in a dream. All I want you to do is laugh. Why is that such a problem for you? Why does it have to be a dwarf? What? Why does my character have to be a dwarf? It doesn't have to be a dwarf. (laughs) Then why is he? Is that the only way you can make this a dream? Put a dwarf in it? No, Tito, I... Have you ever had a dream with a dwarf in it? Do you know anyone who's had a dream with a dwarf in it? No! I don't even have dreams with dwarves in them. The only place I've seen dwarves in dreams is in stupid movies like this. Oh, make it weird, put a dwarf in it. Everyone will go, whoa, 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 it must be a fucking dream, there's a fucking dwarf in it. Well, I'm sick of it. You can take this dream sequence and shove it up your ass. All right, so on set life, DiCillo notes that despite or perhaps because of the focus of the film behind the scenes was one of the most pleasant sets he ever experienced. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said part of the ease of the production was the complete lack of producers or agents kind of there was no oversight on the set and it was very collaborative. Everyone there was an investor, you know, everyone there had skin in the game and they were all very obviously very passionate about it. And so a lot of open collaboration and a creative atmosphere. He also says the scripts, uh, the script put everything into perspective. So if anything went wrong on set, it was like, well, it's not as bad as what's happening in, in the movie. Yeah, it's movie. Yeah. So, um, so we'll be fine. We can keep going. You mentioned improv earlier. Tachillo says, kind of the only scene that improv was also really his big kind of as we were discussing his big kind of miracle moment of everything coming together in the movie uh-huh. was 
uh, Buscemi's rant at the end of the first sequence. He mm-hmm. had down that um, that Nick was just supposed to be kind of tearing the set up looking for the sound. And then he was yeah. going to shoot everyone's reaction shots to Nick just kind of losing it on set and ripping everything yeah. up and everything. And so he, while he was setting up the reaction shot, he was like, Steve, I want you every time I go down and like point close up at one person, I want you to like hurl insults at that person so I can get their reaction to that. And he said, Steve was just so good at it, <laughs> but then they had to flip around and get like his, Steve get yeah. his version of it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where that comes from. When he's, uh, what was he called? He calls the grip. you like, you creaky motherfucker. <laughs> can, can the dolly make any more noise? So the rest of the shoot took place over 16 days. Uh, so it was a 20, 21 day shoot total. Uh, with the final budget, including what they spent on the first segment, coming out to around five hundred grand. Okay. For for our aftermath, the movie premiered at Sundance in nineteen ninety five. Uh, Dechilla won best screenplay at Sundance. Okay. Got rave review from reviews from critics. I sent you Variety and New York Times, and they were both uh, very into it. I think it's t- the Times, but they kind of specifically note that. Um, it, it's broad enough to it says the subject matter might be narrow and in jokey but the finished film is mm. broadened by infectious good humor not to mention a delightful ensemble acting that keeps its energy high if you if you're not in the movie making go watch it and tell us what you think if yeah. If, 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 if yeah if it if it hits you or not and then they earned a distribution deal through sony um it should be noted if you're if there's any doubters about Dechillo's story about brad pitt should be noted that brad pitt and gwyneth attended the sundance premiere screening yeah there's a picture of it if you pull up the imdb for this movie like the first four pictures on imdb are just brad pitt and gwyneth on the red carpet like yeah you're like oh brad pitt um and I, I thought Brad Pitt. I bet Brad Pitt thought it was hysterical. Yeah, that's what, that's what I, <laughs> I bet think. he. I'm sure he really wishes he'd been able to play Chad. Yeah. Uh, it seems right up his alley. The movie premiered to about forty-seven thousand its opening weekend on a, on limited release, but good reviews in most publications led to a word of mouth campaign that ultimately got it to around one point one million dollars in the box office, double the budget. So yeah. yeah. Not bad. Return on, return on investment for yeah uh, for, for his cousin-in-law. In the years since, despite being very hard to find for a while due to some physical media distribution deals, the movie has become a favorite with filmmakers and with film professors. I uh, I, I pulled up a couple of clips of Ticillo talking about this movie, and like multiple comments were like, "I've been a film professor for twenty six years, and I show this to every class. Like, I think it's important to to show them the good and bad sides of of the industry they're getting into." Yeah. And a lot of comments as well or, or will be like, I saw this for the first time in film class. Uh, just like me. Just like Thomas. Yeah. Uh, the movie got a 2003 DVD release in which Tachilla was finally able to put the Brad Pitt rumor to rest on the DVD commentary. <laughs> it was very important to him. This is not about Brad Pitt. This is, this is pre-social media when you everybody's yeah. like, oh, it's about Brad Pitt. And you can't just go on Twitter and be like, no, it's yeah. not. And that's the, yeah, it's the, the, the rumor that became truth, basically. <laughs> It was then another 12 years before Shout Factory would step in and buy the rights to physical uh, media and then release their updated Blu-ray release in, in 2015. Mm-hmm. DiCillo has continued making films and has also become a prolific te- uh, television director. Yeah. Uh, his 2009 documentary on the doors when you're strange was nominated for an Emmy and a Grammy. Oh, wow. I just think it's, I, I think it's so interesting 
you know, one, to hear him talk about this movie a lot and two, to kind of know that he went into television and from hearing him talk about it, it's like really enjoyed it because I th- mm-hmm. think there's already such a drastic change between Johnny Swade and this movie. Like, and I uh-huh. think he's, I think he's someone who's, who's gotten a lot of self perspective and, and as you know, I guess if, if you're in that Jim Jarmusch world for, for 10 years and you're coming out of it and, and Johnny Swade seems like the kind of movie you think that you need to make after making Jim Jarmusch movies for 10 years, you know? And, um, yeah. and then you can make Johnny Swade and then you make living in oblivion being like, Oh, maybe, I, maybe I don't, maybe Johnny Swade's not the kind of movie I need to be making. Yeah. So moving in to what we think worked about this movie, we've, we've, we've sung a lot of praises in this, but let's, let's sum it all up. What works? I mean, the cast, the cast for the most part really works in this movie. And Mm -hmm. you can tell this movie is a labor of love from everyone involved in front and behind the camera. And it's like, and it's poking fun. It's like, you have to know something really well to poke fun of it. You have to have Mm -hmm. a love for it to really poke fun of it. And this movie does that well. And you can tell it has that love there. Um, Bushimi is fantastic. Keener's great. Moroni's uh, uh, amazing. LaGrosse <laughs> is scene stealing. Like it's the list goes on with kind of that main that main group of people. Um, and turn that the, that means the writing's great. I think that's the thing is that the writing that Dechilla has here is really good, and I can see why it was a big hit uh, at Sundance when it, I think it was the Waldo screening of screenwriting award or something mm-hmm. that might have been elsewhere. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a it's a funny clever script i don't know if i'd call it a black comedy like it's labeled on certain places <laughs> like a dark comedy yeah uh, i think i think that can be a little off-putting i think it is yeah um, i don't think it is that no i think it, i think it plays i think it's very accessible like we said you know yeah. you, you yes i do think you'll you'll lose a little bit of opportunity of enjoyment if you're not involved in film but it, it's never yeah. it never plays you know it, it's hard to kind of sum up the vibes of of the especially the new york indie scene but it can be i don't want to call it pretentious just as a blanket statement but but it can be kind of of gatekeepy you know it can be kind of like oh maybe maybe you don't understand the art that we're going for here and this I, i don't think that that atmosphere is not present in this one it's you know it's it, it is full of in jokes but it's not saying like oh if you're not in this crowd you don't need to see this movie you know yeah yeah all right anything else i mean i think it looks great I, it does look great i love the, I, I, I love I, the I, bouncing the color, back and forth between black yeah. and white and color especially in that I first agree. sequence that first cut to color especially with as like bold as the production design is on the yeah, set it's very, yeah yeah with the, <laughs> the purples and the greens yeah, yeah it's it's well like, it's very reminiscent talking about nyu stuff it's like that's what spike lee does on she's gotta have it mm-hmm. is that like it's all black and white and he has a sequence of color and that's because at that point in time i think black and white was probably cheaper yeah. for all oh, for yeah, everyone for sure. and but you want to have like some some like bit of color in there to like kind of spice things up and like it, it makes it artistic is mm-hmm. the thing um but it's a good way to kind of to to showcase the difference in the movie world and the real world is mm-hmm. the thing. And that, and that's, that's key. Yeah. Um, okay. So does anything not work here? Okay. I, I know you'll probably bring up the, the sound, the boom operator guy. <laughs> um, I'll bring up these two things and, and they're, I guess you can argue they're nitpicky, but I think I'm, I'm seeing this a lot with, I'm with 
I, I listen to certain podcasts. They're looking back on like '90s kind of TV or film or whatever, and you have a lot of, and it's not as terrible. It's not as bad here, but you have certain jokes that just do not age well. Yeah, and there's kind of the bit of like it's kind of the gay joke they have in here, where like, hey, like you don't wear that eye patch, like it makes you look kind of gay, mm. and it's like, oh wow. Oh yeah, you're right. It does. It does make me look gay. And you're like, eh. like, it just feels like a weird like. And nowadays, with with our kind of uh, mindset, it feels a little off to like make that this kind of punchline is the thing. Yeah, because you like, know, honestly, that that one particular joke I I read more as as Chad being specifically a joke on on Chad being. That's so, true too. So you can, ar- you can argue that as well. It is, but that, it, that these guys, these guys know that this type of guy in in ninety five, you know, if, if that is true, if you need to that persuade is, him, like you can drop that, and he's gonna go into I, a panic immediately. I do agree with that. I don't know if that was fully the thing, but I think I I agree that it does. That is is a little bit there too. Is that you're you're testing his masculinity? And he's he wants to look like a tough guy, but or like he wants to be a, a leading man, basically, and oh, I can't be gay and be a leading man this is kind of what he thinks like um one other thing that i thought it's like you you don't really need um just katherine keener naked on the bed for like the two like shots mm. they have of her in mm-hmm. there but it also it just feels like of this period of like oh we need to have that in there to make it more because i get notes like that like oh you need to make your stuff more raunchy and i was like i think that's just like a a certain period we like we added stuff in there to make it seem more adult and mature like oh we can it's more real because she's naked on the bed mm-hmm. for just these like two shots but and again and and not to be like a prude I'm, I'm i'm looking at i'm picking very specific things here because it just feels like you could do that same sequence without showing her naked on the bed it yeah. could just be a close-up of her face and it just it almost like weirdly feels jarring a little bit where it just like cuts to a wide and you're like oh okay she's naked on the bed great <laughs> and then we cut to the, the next sequence and we cut back and oh she's again naked on the bed great okay cool um it just feels a little off i don't know maybe i'm a prude maybe i, I don't it, it just feels like it's unnecessary to go with whatever the story they're trying to tell in that sequence. It just feels like, let's just have her naked on the bed. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What about you? Um, yeah. I mean, my big thing is, so, so uh, I follow um, AO Edabiri from the bear on uh-huh. letterboxd. And, and so when I went to log this, this past time, the first thing that popped up was, was her review. And it literally just says, I have questions about the white flavor flavor boom operator character. So many yeah. questions. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's just so unnecessary. And I mean, it, it you know, it, it, it does kind of play like I get the same feeling every, every time I, uh, revisit, uh, can't hardly wait. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like, it feels very unnecessary for the Seth green character, but I do think it is kind of, historically important to remind people that <laughs> white people used That's, to have the audacity to act yeah. like that yes uh, uh but yeah you really it, that you know the, it's, it's this question of of is this movie broad enough to appeal to wider audiences but that specific character is too broad it's it's like yeah. you know everyone else in this movie even regardless of whether it's aged well or not which it hasn't um nobody else in the movie is presented as like as much of a caricature like he's he's just not even like a real human being he's just no, like no, a cartoon yeah, yeah. Yeah. um 
but you know shout out to tom DeCillo's wife's trainer for chipping in a little bit of money for the movie yeah i mean i'll give him that he he helped make the movie happen that's 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 the thing good for, good on him good on him <laughs> uh anything else that's that's it all right i know i hopefully that's that don't sound too weird picking out those things <laughs> just, 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 you didn't need them you didn't need them for film facts i just put this this isn't really a fact but i put this in there if you if you enjoyed hearing uh tom dechillo's words earlier yeah i think he's got a he's got a great perspective on filmmaking and he, he's very candid about his experiences but a few years back he filmed and edited a lecture on filmmaking that he gave to a film school kind of based around the experience of this film and uh-huh. he uploaded it to his own youtube channel under the title drunk film school and it's very uh okay very worth checking out it's it's like six little like five minute segments okay couple of facts oh. uh according to the slate wolf's last name is uberman i saw that yeah <laughs> and Lick's, nick's last name is rev which is french for dream so mm. a little imagery there mm-hmm. uh daniel von zernick who plays wanda the first ad had already been a child actor before this project she was probably one of the more notable uh she was in la bamba um she was she was probably a little bit more notable heading into this but after this movie oh is she is she is she his is she's oh is she the girlfriend she's donna she's donna okay Mm -hmm. you're right yeah um got a little taste of producing while making this movie and has since become a very prominent producer in the in the world of of hallmark christmas movies oh wow good for her yes this is her last movie it looks like Last like oh like feature film. She did mm-hmm. TV movies afterwards. Okay, married Lori, to an, uh, oh. married to an accordion player. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah, <laughs> Lori Tan Chin, who was a popular theater actor at the time, is very briefly seen in this as the as the set costumer. Uh, but she has become very successful on screen in her later career. She uh, was a main character in Orange Is the New Black. Oh. And she voiced uh, Auntie Chin in Turning Red last year. Oh. She also played uh, Aquafina's grandmother in Nora from Queens. Okay. Here's our last big fact. We've been talking about that the role of Chad Palomino is not based on Brad Pitt. James LaGrosse has said in interviews that his performance is actually based on another heartthrob that he had worked with previously. I went back through his IMDb. He was in a lot of movies. He's in a lot he of movies. So it's a little hard to narrow it down. Like we said, he was in Point Break. So there's two heartthrobs right there. Yeah. That it could be. I like to I like to think it's not based on either of those guys. But my theory Is, it, is he in singles? Is it, is it, is it, no, no. My theory, and it's very funny that you mentioned this person earlier. Um in 1991, James LaGrosse was in Blood and Concrete, starring Jennifer Beals and Billy Zane. I'm, I'm smiling, kind of <laughs> laughing, is, is the thing. So, um... From what I've heard of Billy Zane, this this fits right in. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I, was crack, I was like trying not to crack up when you were like, yeah, talking about Billy Zane and improving and <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a fact. Don't come for me. Don't come for me, Billy Zane. But looking back at James Lagrosse's, You're just assuming. Uh, looking back at his IMDb, I think I think that fits the bill. I, I mean, he did work with Matt Dillon twice. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of people it could be. He did a movie yeah. with uh, John Cusack and Jeremy Piven. Like he's, yeah, the dude worked like 88 to 96. He was in everything. The Billy Zane part is kind of funny. And it just came up organically. Look at that. Yeah, look at that. <laughs> Didn't plan it at all. <laughs> okay, for our awards, uh-huh. I have a feeling I know where one of these is going to go, but I'm very curious about the rest. Um, Beatrice Street Award, actor actress with limited scenes that kills it. I mean, does Dinklage count here? Or, I think, I think or, it's either Dinklage or James LaGrosse. I think that's it. Okay, okay, so that's the thing. Yeah. I, Unless you want to be like two, Tom Jarmusch, you know, but. No, yeah, that's the, yeah. Mm. I, I think this, let's take, let's take LaGrosse and Dinklage out of this one. Oh, okay. Because, because they're kind of the star of each sequence. Okay. I would argue that's like 30 minutes, the 90 minute movie. So it's not fully limited. I would put that in support. So you're giving it to one of the smaller crew members. It probably should be one of the smaller crew members. Yes. Okay. Which in that case, it might be Kevin Corrigan for me. <laughs> what are your thoughts? I I love Kevin Corrigan. I give it. I'd give it to him on that on that opening uh, camera truck parking. <laughs> where's, where's, where's camera truck? Where's, where's camera? Where's camera truck parking? I love that scene with him in the grip when he's like, "Yeah, I got I got this this uh, script I've been oh, I got the writing. Script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you want to shoot, shoot it? it?" And he's like, "Yeah, it? sure." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You ever shot? You ever shot a movie before? Um, I like that guy too. That guy's fun too. And he's just like, or I, I I love this scene when they're like all looking at the fog machine. They're like, oh, I think you put. Maybe the gas, the gas and the oil here, going oil here. here. <laughs> and like, I think he's right. I think he's right too. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess Kevin Corgan. I think I I like the focus pull mess up. Uh, yeah, the, the truck at the beginning. I love when Ke- he's got that line of when when Cora forgets her line and he's like, Alan, I have no memory of this line whatsoever. <laughs> so now the Annie Potts X Factor Award for the supporting actor actress that is the most memorable. Okay, see now now this gets very difficult. Yeah. Because yeah. I was trying to set you up, you know. Now now you've got Peter Dinklage and James Gross in the now, in the same category. As Dermot Maroney and mm-hmm. probably and Catherine Keener, I would say too. Hmm. Why'd I do that to myself, Thomas? <laughs> um I still stand by it. It's just like it would have been easier. Um I for me, I would do Mulroney. Yeah, even though absolutely. I love LaGrosse, I think it's Mulroney. I think he is just, he's the one I always remember from this movie over anyone else is mm-hmm. the thing. And it is, it is such a fun, like every time he's in frame, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's the mannerisms he adopts. It's the look, it's the, everything yeah. about him is hilarious. And yeah. <laughs> just my ass. <laughs> he's, he's steals every like time he's he's in the frame he steals the steals the yeah. shot yeah personal professional emotional um i love the like uh uh again we didn't talk about this but when, when they're all during the room tone which i whole i fully relate to that room tone sequence <laughs> when you're just standing room tone for those who don't know is like when you're shooting a film uh and after you finish the scene what you want to do is have just 30 seconds some people want a minute uh, of just uninterrupted just silence in the room so when you do editing you can kind of edit the sound around where you're not hearing the cuts or whatever 
And I can tell you right now, in college, room tone was always the most difficult thing to do because I would always start laughing during room tone. Because you're in a room. Everybody wants to start packing up. Yeah. You know, they, 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 they're showing everybody what, what, you know, what everybody's like hopes and dreams are. And the, the grip just wants to go get a cheeseburger. Like, I, like it's yeah. always the end of a long take. Everybody's done. And then it's like, oh, we got to do room tone. Everybody yeah. freeze. And it's yeah. just the longest like minute of your life. And you're just standing in a room with a bunch of people in silence for a half minute to a minute. And what I always had to do, either I had to walk out of the room before I did it, or I would just look down at the ground with my eyes closed. <laughs> because what happens is you just look at a specific person in the room and they could have just like a quizzical look on their face, which can just make you laugh because you know you're not supposed to laugh. And then you have to, I mean, it's the moment in the movie when the sound guy, like his face just goes like his like, face like turns and like snaps back to see who made a noise mm-hmm. or whatever um yeah that's that's what happens when like dusty would do sound or whatever for us um but no but moroni i think is just he i do believe it's his best performance not again not to say he's a bad actor by any means he shows his his comedic side that we don't always get to see with him in other film or tv shows basically yeah, yeah so that's why sure. i would go with him shows us it shows us what could have been yes yes i'm not blaming anybody wanda all i'm saying is that we left last night and i knew we didn't get that scene i'm sorry i thought it was a great scene nick it was okay and you know i mean i could use it it's gonna be all right but today i'm not gonna settle for okay this is a big scene and i'm not leaving till we get it look whatever it takes nick we're here for you all right well here's what i want to do i want to get the whole scene in one shot it's been done i know but Let's try it anyway. Handheld? No, Dolly. We go from close-up, pull back to a wide shot, back to a close-up. I'll use the 35. It'll minimize the distortion, and we can light the whole thing from the ceiling. It actually could be kind of great. It sounds incredible. How long, Wolf? Uh, I got to see a couple run-throughs. Not too many, all right? It's a big scene for the actors. I don't want to wear them out before we get started. We've got all day, Nick. Whatever it takes. How long, Wolf? 45, an hour? I don't know how you drink that shit black, Nick. I got to dump in the milk. It's the only way I can cut the taste. Okay, well, that brings us to the Gene Hackman MVP award. Who's the person that carries this movie? While it is a team effort, I think it's Tom Ticillo, who is probably the winner of this award this this week. Uh, I think he's the... he, he I mean, it's, like, it's an idea that he came up with. He was smart enough to be like, oh, let me take my pain of that first movie that was... Because <laughs> it was a box office failure. And I think he... I think that was when he really thought about was probably like, this is a box office failure. Why do I put myself through this? Like that we had this, we had, I mean, you had everything right. You had the, the star on the rise Mm -hmm. with Brad Pitt. You had kind of the indie like art house type thing with the, with the story. And it just doesn't pan out. And you're like, what am I doing? And you take that pain of making that movie and turning it into art in some way. Um, And then I think, in order to get everyone involved like he did, you have to be a good leader mm-hmm. in, that, in, in that way. Because if you're a terrible human being or, you're, or even just like a not fun person to work with, they wouldn't be jumping at the chance to not only be in your movie, but invest in your yeah, movie and to invest pay, in you. Pay you to be in it. <laughs> pay, yeah, yeah, pay you to be in it, basically. Yes, exactly. And, and and that means that that means something I think mm-hmm. to a filmmaker, and that means that people liked working with him, and they liked the script that he wrote, 
for yeah. this. So I, 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 think, mean, I think enough we, so that they were pushing him for more, even when, when it wasn't yeah. even necessarily on his mind. Yeah. He could have just done the short and that would have been it if he wanted to, but like they really, I, cause I remember, I think I heard Keener talk about how like, we all wanted to get on, like, and do it again. Like, what can we do it again? Can we, can we do a whole movie about this or whatever? Um, so that means he has a good working, working environment, at least he did on this film. Um, and he had people who, again, who wanted to work with him and wanted to continue working with him on this movie. So I think, and, and, and the thing is not just that part, he makes a good movie Yeah, is the thing. And I think it, I think it shows, you know, kind of so much, uh, kind of humility and, and personal growth to kind of, especially as, uh, you know, just really just three or four years afterwards to kind of look back yeah. on Johnny Sway and be like, this whole thing is kind of ridiculous. Like, the you know not just the process of making it but but kind of the pretentiousness of it in itself (laughs) yeah um it's it's such a it's i think it's such a this movie in particular marks such a personal growth and 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 evolution from from obviously what he thought film should be when he made johnny suede to to this all right tom DeCillo, gene hackman mvp award winner Shout out to everybody else who's great in this, but did not get an award because Brandon yeah. changed the categories around. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my fault the scene isn't working. I, I I apologize, Chad. I apologize to you too. I just I'm completely unfocused here, and I I think what we need to do is to just loosen up the scene somehow. What would you like to do? Well, I was wondering, maybe could we try improvising the scene a little bit? more along the lines of what Chad's been doing, you know? Uh, maybe that'll help me find something. That... That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> what do you think, Chad? It's the only way I can work. Let's take it apart. Let's cut it loose. Good. And, uh, we'll shoot it, all right? Hell, why not? Roll that motherfucking camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! Right, now we're making a fucking movie. Final questions. This one was a little tough. I told Brandon before, it was a little tough for the remake because... You yeah. can't you can't really like be like oh if this was in classical Hollywood because this type of filmmaking does not exist at all in, in classical Hollywood so it wouldn't really fit, um, and and it's a little too modern to to be like oh let's recast Steve Buscemi but let's do it as let's do it as modern um, okay because indie filmmaking is still going strong still Sundance going strong. is still the same Sundance as it ever was. Ah. <laughs> I, honestly, I think if anything, we're kind of back to it's reverting back i yeah, think it's going back to, to, i think it's going kind back. of that that for for a little while independent quote-unquote independent f- filmmaking became kind of this inside game where you yeah. couldn't really just do something scrappy and i feel like we are kind of getting back to where the, I, the scrappy people are, are kind of getting back into it i agree with that i do agree with that um okay so who do you okay so I have LaGrosse, I have Wolf, I have Nicole, and I have Nick at the All moment. Right, that's perfect. I'm I'm making it as we go. Okay. We'll go with um Let's do a Chad Palomino. Chad, first. Chad Palomino. Uh Zach Efron. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Not Brad Pitt. Not Brad Pitt. A little, <laughs> little, too, little, little too old. A little too old. But I think Efron I think Efron is funny and people don't realize how funny Efron is, is mm-hmm. the thing. I, I mean, neighbors. He's great in neighbors, of course, but I think he's just a, a naturally funny guy. Um, I think he'd be good for it. Um, 
and even though he's not your typical like he's if you can play with the movie star aspect of him more is the thing mm-hmm. uh not not because because i wouldn't say i think most times zach Efron's not seen as a serious actor even though i think he is talented as a serious actor but i think if you can play up the the movie star like heartthrob aspect of it he's like oh maybe it's like i'm trying to change my image here with this type movie or something i don't know um mm-hmm. but for that one okay for wolf I have two choices here. Okay. I'll give you the one that I think you might like the most. Uh, and that's Andrew Garfield. <laughs> for Wolf. Okay. My next one is Adam Brody for Wolf. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Are you picking out that one? I mean, I love, I'm a big fan of the Brodesants. But yeah. um, I'm not going to turn down Andrew Garfield in a movie. Come it. on. I just I could see I could see him being a wolf. I don't know why. I, I it's maybe I shouldn't pick a, a lead guy in this type of role, but I think he Garfield just like likes intro, like like odd things. He's mm-hmm. a very like he, he like I think sometimes people don't realize how to put this. It's like the letterbox crowd is is kind of the generic output, but like the kind of like film people who don't realize that the people who are like Robert Pattinson or Garfield or um, uh, Paul Dano, just like, like nerdy and like weird, like eccentric, eccentric things, basically. Mm-hmm. They're not just like all like, cause I, I've heard like, like when Pattinson and Dan talk about like comic books, it's like, if the film people find out about this, you guys better watch <laughs> out. Um, but yeah, I, I think Garfield will be fun in this role. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we mentioned it briefly at the top of the show, but I just think the the beauty of Wolf is that, like, camera bros have not changed. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I – never mind. I was going to – I was going to – a thing I worked on one time where it was, like, there was, there were certain things where it was this to a T, and I was like, oh, no. Because it was <laughs> someone that I was just working with that, that like – I didn't know going into the project and it was just like, yeah, it was like, no, 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 we should do a shot like this. I was like, no, we shouldn't. We Mm -hmm. shouldn't. This makes more. And it was just like a constant debate. And I'm like, okay, fine. I I love that shot when the grip comes in um, with a flag. Well, and I love, she's like, where's that scrim going? And he's like, it's a flag. Flag. Yeah. And then then you just cut back and Wolf's like behind her. (laughs) With the the fingers. (laughs) No, we're good. good. No tweaking, Wolf. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah. All right, so Nicole. Nicole, yep. I have a few different choices here. I'll I'll give you these two, and I'll and if you want a third one, I'll give you a third one. Uh, but these are these are a little bit lesser known. Um, Madeline, well, not lesser known, but Madeline Klein mm-hmm. as Nicole. Madeline Klein from Glass Onion and, and Outer Banks. I think she could be fun in this role. Shout out! Um, shout out! Goose Creek, South Carolina. Oh, is that where she's from? Yeah, right next. Yeah, right next to my town. Do you have mutual friends, Thomas? No, I, I think I'm a good deal older than Matt. <laughs> <laughs> so my other one, I had Leslie Grace from In the Heights, who mm. was also in the ill-fated. Yeah, gotta give girl. her another shot. Yeah, I also like a Melissa, I guess uh, Barrera, yeah. also from mm. yeah. In the Heights. Mm-hmm. One of them would be, I think, great in this role. Leslie Grace, I think, just because we had, just to give her another shot. I think, I think. It'd be interesting to see. Yeah. But Melissa Barrera also would be fun too. I think it's like, it's like Barrera is like really taken off after in the Heights because of the scream and everything. But mm-hmm. Leslie Grace, 
and that's that's the sad part about Batgirl. Batgirl was gonna be her like, yeah, big coming out party basically, and nothing else. And and in the Heights just didn't do that well because it was coming out like the summer when movies were opening back up because of COVID, and it was just kind of a bad break. She had two kind of very bad breaks mm-hmm. for her. I'm just trying to think of what someone who's like who's a modern Catherine Keener that's got the kind of like indie cred. Um. Well, also it's like indie. It's like it. it uh, it's so weird. Of like with a twenty four. It's like is it indie or is it just what? Is like, it just a twenty four? Is it just is marketed A24? as indie? Is, uh, yeah, is it marketed as indie? Um, like one I thought, but I don't know if she would play this. Was Thomas and McKenzie? Hmm. Um, I think she could be a good AD, a younger <laughs> AD maybe. Which wouldn't match up with her dating Andrew Garfield. That would be kind of weird. No, no. Um, no, I do. I, 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 I like Leslie Grace. I'm, I'm on board for Leslie Grace. I just think it's an yeah. interesting question of who's kind of that. Uh, who's who's kind I, of that I, indie I, darling? I also these days. thought. I also thought of Zoe Lester Jones. Hmm. Um, Lester Jones. Um, for it, or for a role in this movie. She'd be I, a Dakota, good idea as well. Dakota, Dakota Johnson was no one that popped in my head. Hmm. Like. So all right, well, out, of, get, out, out of all those names, I'm, I'm sticking with Leslie Grace. I want to give her okay. I'm okay, give her another shot. shot. Um, okay. But let's get let's get our Nick. Okay, I, I this is the one I picked. This one I might need help on, but I picked Andy Samberg for Nick. <laughs> I I you know what I had a very strong. This is the only one that I when I thought like oh modern remake and we we've given him we've given him several roles before, but I think he'd fit perfect here, and I think he's a modern bushimi and that he can be the straight man and then he can i think a lot of people think of him as a weirder character actor but he can play the straight man is uh lakeith stanfield yeah i mean if like glass onion he is just the straight man to i mean not knives out knives out knives out yeah yeah he's just the straight man to to blanc yeah to Um, to craig yeah and and i could see him i mean he absolutely you know if you're familiar with his kind of weirder work or the character he plays in atlanta or the time he stormed the stage during the award ceremony like he can absolutely have that kind of like outrage but i think he's also anytime he does play a more kind of grounded uh leading man or a straight man i totally i I totally buy into both you know i can take him as a completely comedic side character or i can take him as as a as a as a real human leading character Okay. We'll be, we'll go, we'll go with Keith Stanfield. I know we can't we did we didn't for long goodbye. I know it was the mm-hmm. big one. I don't know if we put him elsewhere, but okay, we'll go we'll go with Lakeith. I I just want to see if they can pull off the 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 breakdown as well as Bushimi does. I'd love to see thing. it. I love but, to see uh, it. Yeah, I, I mean scream. you know Bushimi's Bushimi's got that insane energy that yes that uh, really nails that part. An- another random one i put down was pete davidson i don't know how you feel <laughs> no. about that no, <laughs> no. maybe it's maybe it's in, in, in uh maybe it's the first ac he he, oh, he yeah or yeah he could be the first ac i'll go I'll, we'll get pete davidson first ac i'll go with okay. that all right kevin, great. Cor- kevin corgan pete davidson is the modern day care kevin corgan is what you're saying <laughs> i don't know about all that <laughs> okay um does this fit with any other genres? Um, I mean, it's kind of of one location, like yeah. Well, I mean, they they go else. Uh, they did go Barely. elsewhere, but yeah, bedroom. But it, it's 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 yeah, bedroom and like the, the driving in the car. Um, 
I mean, here's the thing. Is it is it a 24-hour movie? Uh, yeah, if it's everybody waking up the morning. It's, technically, it's, it's dreams. waking up it's the morning dreams. before. Yeah. It's dreams and then the day of. You, so could, you could argue that. I think you'd, you be could argue that. The, I think you'd be cheating the rules a little bit. Um, I know. Um, I think on some level it functions as a workplace comedy. It does. It does. I agree with that. You know, it's all kind of about the dynamics and the frustrations of, of and it, I mean, it, like you said, it's a one location film. So it, we, it's literally just all we see if these people are them at work and, yep. um, and kind of their, their relationships and, and the and things that, that and, work and don't and go wrong at, at the workplace. And that's kind of how it would relate to non-film people mm-hmm. is that if you can tap into that, and, and grasp the workplace comedy aspect of the film mm-hmm. um that's when i think you'll you'll enjoy yeah. it i think anybody who has worked in any sort of management role can relate to nick in this movie you know oh god yes yes <laughs> yes yes you can yes you can managing personalities and their quirks and everything yeah well and just you know the the kind of overall theme of the first segment is him coming in and yeah. <laughs> being like i've compromised every day on Everything. this movie all i want <laughs> is to shoot this in a water and then just yeah. watching everything whatever it takes chip next. away whatever, at him. Yeah, <laughs> whatever it takes, Nick. Whatever it takes, Nick. To I love when Nick the sound Nick. guy comes up to him and is like, may I suggest that we split the shot up? <laughs> like no one else has said it. To, you know, everyone else has already said it to him at some point <laughs> during that day. Um, may, I, may I suggest? All right. Last question. Where does this film fit within our movies on movies? Well, again, it has that... that Again, I talked about there's certain different versions of this kind of genre, and this is one where you're actually making a film. And I think in terms of showcasing making a film throughout a single film, it's definitely one of the best, if not the best, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, because everything else is like commenting on the industry uh, in some form or fashion, and this is more of like the the indie, the 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 best friend who's making a movie on the weekend type thing. Mm-hmm. And it's the film school people or whatever. Um, and I think this is the kind of the best one of like in our modern sense, like maybe you can argue seeing in the rain is the best movie about making a movie. I don't know, but I think this is one where it really looks at, it's like this and day, day for night for mm-hmm. Truffaut. I think are the ones that like, I think I might've, I might have played these two together or something for like a movie thing at, at Sideshow because I think oh, nice. I played both both of these at one point. And I think these two, um, Day for Night and this one, are the ones that showcase the best, like the the fault, the, the trappings of making a movie, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and either the best, and then Eight and a Half is a different type beast, I will say. And we'll talk about that next week. But I, I really love just kind of the inner workings of how what it captures of making a, a film set. And again, ask the question is it all worth it mm-hmm. when you think about it? Um, and that's kind of the, that's the overarching thing that might come into play with a lot of these movies. Is it all worth it? Is the thing, as I said earlier in the show, um, I think does that very well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, <clears throat> I, in the, in the past couple of years, the like movie set memes have really taken off and it, and it's just the idea yeah. of like, there's no matter what movie you work on, if you're in like the crew, if you're, like the the shared experience is just so common <laughs> that like everyone yeah, yeah, can yeah. get the same jokes even if you haven't worked on the same movie or everything and and that's what this this one is this is like this is a crew level movie it's not about 
yeah the, it's not about finding the funding it's not about dealing with the studios it is about coming together as a crew and, and what a day-to-day on set feels like and so it feels really unique in that mm-hmm. sense and um and then like you said it's made very very lovingly it's it's it is a it is a loving look at how awful making movies can be and and i think that yeah. is such a unique tone to take on and and yeah there's not many else in this genre that are like this one and and it's you know I, I, it's a really fun watch it's a it's a breezy 84 minutes yeah. um but but yeah i think it, i think it is it is great in that like like that it's it's for everybody it's it's mm-hmm. yes ultimately nick is the focus but it, it, it kind of deals with everyone's frustrations and fears and experiences on a set and and ultimately you know ask the question but then does kind of come away with this happy ending and and so mm-hmm. yeah like like we said it becomes kind of this ultimate film school movie of yep. show that show this to someone before they get too deep into it to <laughs> here's uh, what your life will be every day on yeah. set yeah. call time is 4 a.m yeah be prepared don't drink the milk don't drink the milk that's true <laughs> don't do it don't eat the cold pizza that's what i gotta say they didn't have they, they didn't deal with that stuff they didn't deal with the <laughs> cold sandwiches and cold pizza aspect of us all um all right is that it on that's a wrap all right on living well, in oblivion well next week david's gonna be joining me and we're gonna be talking about fellini's eight and a half uh be prepared we'll be going into the the sur- surrealism or whatever i guess you could say of uh realistic surrealism of eight and a half of a man looking back at his life and trying to make sense of it as he makes his movie uh his his masterpiece um eight and a half i believe is currently streaming on hbo max and criterion if i'm not mistaken hopefully hbo max doesn't delete it uh it's on campy as well so um if you haven't seen eight and a half go check it out if you can that's next week um uh be sure to look at our patreon and we'll be talking about our favorite films of 2022 soon uh so stay tuned for that again thank you all for who support our patreon it helps keep this show going and we truly appreciate it um but yeah but that's what we have for you today on this episode if you are, have any questions for us feel free to contact us at podcast at gmail.com send us your questions comments kind words you can also do it on instagram facebook wherever send us whatever you like we'll read it i've gotten several messages from people who have found our show uh through instagram somehow through the reels and stuff we're doing or through tiktok and they've so that they, uh, I think uh, a, a guy who uh, wrote to us, Cody, he mentioned how we're helping him get through, like going through uh, midterm reviews and exams. So thank you, Cody, for listening to us and, and staying up to date on our show. And everyone else, we have people come from Australia men- uh, men- or uh, asks about the show and mention the show and how I like it um, all over. So thank you to all who have been kind of reaching out to us and supporting us. And we hope you continue to, to do so. Um, and if you're a new listener or if you're a fan of the show and you haven't subscribed, be sure to do that as soon as you can. Stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Uh, and if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. You know, sometimes, much like filmmakers, we can question why we're doing this. That's true. So leave <laughs> us some reviews. Everyone needs a little affirmation every once in a while. Our- are we speaking out into a void is sometimes what I is what are I we wonder. living in oblivion 
Are we living in oblivion? There we go. And that's that's the end of the show right there. Um, and don't forget to lo- and like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.